0: Today we are going to look at the theme of peace, and we're going to worship Jesus as our Prince of Peace, and we're going to do so in our current moment of civil and racial unrest. As headlined by the Sydney Morning Herald, the question now is, after the protest, what next? And the writer of this opinion piece says, one of the perennial challenges of process is how to translate it into substantive and durable change. And our collective hope is for institutional reform to take place. But what hope is there to change the human heart? Because that is really the true source to the problem and the barrier of peace on earth, And what is God doing about this, you might be asking? Can God do anything at all? If Jesus is the Prince of Peace, then how is he relevant to our current moment? Well, this morning in the book of Acts, God is doing something about this. But he's doing it in a quiet, unpredictable almost imperceptible kind of way. Jesus said when he was on earth, the kingdom on earth is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it walked all the way through the dough. The way of the kingdom of God changes the world is slowly, subtly, implicitly, in ways that doesn't immediately make a big splash, Jesus is bringing about peace on earth, but not in a way that we might expect. So let's perhaps leave our modern world for a moment and step back into the world of Acts. Of Acts chapter 10, a world that was defined by distinction and separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles is actually a Jewish word that means the nations. Acts shows us a time in history our human history, where there was a great divide between the Jews and all other nations, all other peoples. And if you're not familiar with this Jew and Gentile divide in the Bible, then let me give you a quick summary of the story of Israel from the Bible. In the Old Testament, we read that God makes a promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the descendants of Jacob, which makes up the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the promise that God makes to the nation the tribes of Israel, is that he will work out his purposes through the people of Israel. And what we see is two themes that seem to work in tension in the people of Israel as we trace through the story of Israel in the Old Testament. And firstly, God choosing Israel was for the sake of the nations. And so there's this theme in the Old Testament that God is choosing Israel to always be a blessing to the rest of the world, to the rest of the nations. But secondly, at the same time as we read the Old Testament, God's people were to be distinct. They were to be separate. They were to be unlike the other nations because all the other nations worshipped false gods. And so what we see is these two themes that we trace throughout the Old Testament through the history of the people of God. And what happens, even as you might see this in your own heart, is the theme of blessing to the nations gets minimized and the theme of separation gets maximized. So that by the time we get to the time of Jesus and the apostles, the Jews have become rather ethnocentric. they become filled with national pride. And they're rather proud of the fact that they are the chosen people of God. And the great British Bible teacher and commentator frames this really well, just how big a divide the Jews and Gentile distinction was. He says, It's difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other. Not that the Old Testament itself supported such a divide. Psalmists and the prophets foretold the day when God's Messiah would inherit the nation. The Lord's servant would be their light. All nations would flow to the Lord's house and God would pour out his spirit on all humankind. The tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred and developed traditions which kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would even enter the home of a Gentile, even a God-fearer, or invite such into his home. This was the entrenched prejudice that had to be overcome before the Gentiles can be admitted into the Christian community on equal terms with them and before the church could become a truly multiracial, multicultural society. Friends, that was what was happening in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And there is a reason why Acts chapter 10 and 11 is the largest chunk of narrative in the book of Acts because this is massively important. The deepest question is not what happens after the protest. The deeper question is, can God overcome the pride and prejudice of our human hearts? Can God make enemies his friends? Can God take an outsider and make him an insider. That is the question that Acts 10 and 11 seeks to answer. So to help you guide you through this large text, here's an outline of Acts chapter 10 and 11. The story starts with an angel speaking to Cornelius in Caesarea, then Peter has a vision on the way to Caesarea, Peter meets Cornelius and preaches the gospel, and the story ends with Peter giving an account of what had actually happened in Caesarea. And so Acts chapter 10 starts with the introduction of a man named Cornelius in Caesarea. He was a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. And so Cornelius is a military general for the Roman Empire. He's obviously a man of status, power, and position, And we know he's a Roman, he's a Gentile, he's an outsider to God and to God's people. The text also says that he and his family were God-fearing. In other words, he was somewhat religious. He believed in the existence of God, but he was not a full follower of Jesus. And the story goes on to tell us that an angel comes to him and says, "'Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God.'" Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. The next day, the text goes on to tell us that Peter has a vision in Joppa. Peter goes on the rooftop of Simon the tanner's place in Joppa to pray. And during his time in prayer, he has this strange vision. He sees this sheet coming down from heaven And on this sheet are all these animals. And he hears this voice that says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, I've never eaten anything unclean. Remember, Peter is a good Jew. And to be distinct and separate from the other nations, there were these laws that categorized certain animals as unclean and to not to eat and other animals as clean which you can eat. But in verse 15, we read, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This vision happens three times and Peter wakes up without a clue of what this vision was all about. Like any one of you who've had a dream and you've woken up and you're like, what on earth was that about? Peter starts to ponder about the meaning of the vision. And in the midst of this pondering and uh, wandering whilst he's trying to connect the dots, we read in verse 19 that the Holy Spirit tells him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. There's a bit of an unfortunate choice in the English translation here because the English translation that has rendered this verse, do not hesitate to go with him, in the Greek phrase, Uh, phrase that is translated will be a better rendering of the English is to go with them without distinction. To go with them without distinction. These men coming to Peter are Gentiles. Peter just woke up from this vision of a sheet full of animals with a voice that says, do not call anything impure, which God has made clean. Now God is telling him, Peter, go with these Gentile men and don't make any distinctions. Don't see them as unclean and see yourself as clean. And so maybe Peter is starting to connect the dots, and so Peter goes with these Gentile men to travel from Joppa to Caesarea. It takes them two days. When Peter arrived in Caesarea, Cornelius invites Peter to meet with him, his family members, and some of his friends. And where do they meet? In his home. And notice in verse 28 how Peter addresses the people in the house. He said to them, "'You are well aware that it is against our law,' for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Now again, the phrase against our law might give you the sense that it's against God's law, but really the word is better translated as as against our custom. It's against our custom for a Jew to associate with a Gentile. It was taboo among the people of God to associate or visit anyone who is a Gentile. And so he... What we have so far in the story, we have our two main characters. Both of our main characters define themselves primarily by their ethnicity or by their status. We have a Roman centurion, a high-ranking officer, a person of status. And we have this devout Jew who by custom doesn't associate with Gentiles These are the two main characters here, and here is how they are defining themselves. How do you define yourself? What's your calling card? How do you front yourself when you meet someone new for the first time? The most basic obstacle to peace in our world is our tendency to define ourselves by our ethnicity or our status or our social group, or our class. White, not black. Liberal, not conservative. Born here, not immigrant. Single, not married. White collar, not blue collar. And on and on we could go. We tend to define ourselves in ways that also separate, distinguish ourselves from Other groups of people, other groupings, other social classes, sort of like Jew, not Gentile. And what God, the great peacekeeper, is about to do is to show to Peter and Cornelius that because of Jesus, none of that matters anymore. Jesus gives us a new identity that makes everything else secondary. It doesn't remove our ethnicity, it doesn't remove our cultural heritage, it doesn't remove our positions or our class or our vocation, but it relativizes all those things. By God's grace, Jesus gives us a new identity that makes everything else secondary. Look at the sermon that Peter begins to preach at verse 34. So Peter walks into this room full of Gentiles. He's been pondering this vision with animals and God saying, don't make impure what God has made clean. And then God takes Peter to see these Gentile men. And God tells him, don't make any distinctions about them. He comes now into this room full of Gentiles ready to listen about Jesus. And I think the penny drops for him because this is what he says. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. Friends, do you hear the good news in that statement? God shows no favoritism. God does not favor any one group, any one class over another God shows no favoritism. God is totally immune from all of our social distinctions that we make to separate ourselves from other. God shows no favoritism. God accepts anyone from any race, from any nation, in any position of society who would fear him and obey him. God welcomes everybody into his kingdom. And that is what he's saying Notice how Peter captures the majesty of God's work of salvation in the next verse. Notice how Peter ties all those themes in the Old Testament together in one verse, verse 36. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. In this just one phrase, Peter captures God's election of Israel, the good news of the gospel of peace for all nations, the centrality of Jesus Christ to bring us that peace, and the fact that Jesus is Lord of all all nations, all peoples, all races. Then Peter goes on to preach the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And while Peter is preaching about Jesus, the text tells us that the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles who are hearing about the good news of Jesus, and they begin to speak in tongues. And that's evidence that the God's Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, also is given to the Gentiles. But the story doesn't end there. Chapter 11 tells us that Peter gives an account of the salvation of the Gentiles in Jerusalem. So now we're in chapter 11, and verse 1 we read The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? They were saying, Peter, you broke the rules. Peter, you went against our customs. Peter, what are you thinking? And so what does Peter do in response? Well, he just retells this amazing story of what happened in Joppa. He tells them, look, I had this vision about this sheet of animals and God told them that, look, don't make anything impure, which I've made and clean. And in the meantime, the angel goes to Cornelius and tells Cornelius to send men to find Simon. And Simon ends up finding these Gentile men. They end up traveling to Caesarea. He enters into a Gentile home and preaches the gospel and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And this is what he says as the conclusion of his account of what has happened. He says in verses 17 and 18, this is what he says in conclusion. So if God gave them the same spirit he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ who was i who was i to think that i could stand in god's way when they heard this they had no further objections and praising god saying so then even to gentiles god has granted repentance that leads to life notice the word gift in verse 17, and notice the word granted in verse 18. The Holy Spirit is a gift to the Jews and the Gentiles. Repentance is a gift to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Salvation is a gift to the Jews and the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, they receive the same gift from God. And as they began to understand that, it turned these Jews in Jerusalem from critics to now worshippers who glorify God, awed of God's mercy. Do you see, Jesus brings peace on earth through grace. Jesus brings peace on earth through grace. If salvation is something we do, then look, we can have something to be boastful about. We can actually have reasons to look down on others. We have reasons to make separation and distinction from others. Because after all, look, we've achieved salvation and they haven't. And if salvation is something that we can achieve, then God has reasons to have favorites. But if salvation is a gift to receive by grace and mercy, then no one is better than anyone else. No one has a privileged position. All of us are beggars who are humbled before the mercy of a sovereign God who gives the gift of salvation freely. What extinguished the racial animosity, what put out an end to the ethnocentric pride was the fact that God gifted the Gentiles the same saving grace that the Jews had experienced. And so Cornelius is no longer a centurion of the Italian regiment. He's now a child of God in Jesus Christ. And oh yeah, by the way, he also works for the Roman Empire. And Peter is no longer this good Jew who does the right thing and doesn't associate with Gentiles. No, now he's a child of God, of Jesus Christ, and so happens also to have a Jewish heritage. See, grace gives us a new identity that relativizes every other social identity. It doesn't take away our ethnicity. It doesn't take away our cultural heritage or our class or anything that might define us socially. It doesn't take those things away, but the gospel doesn't create a monoculture. Rather, it creates a primary identity that allows God's people to be made of every culture every race, every tribe, every people. Peace can only come through grace. Only when God gives us a new identity can he make us all level, level at the foot of the cross. Jesus Christ gives us peace through grace, and this is the hope for our world. This is the hope for our current moment. Only by God's grace in Jesus Christ can we see that there's nothing that we can do to better ourselves and be better than anyone else. Only then can we be brought to the end of our division and our distinctions. Only when we have a new identity in Christ will all our other identities be relativized so that we can have peace with God and peace with one another. That is why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. God shows no favoritism because we all need grace. We all need Jesus. God offers us peace on earth through grace. And when we receive that peace, we become peacemakers. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much That the gift of your spirit, the gift of repentance, the gift of your salvation is to the Jews and to us Gentiles alike. We thank you, Lord, that anyone, any person can come into your kingdom. That you show no favoritism from one race to another, from one class to another, from one person to another, Lord. May we, like the Jews in Jerusalem, just worship you, glorify you, worship you, and praise you that you would be such a merciful and gracious Lord. Father, we pray for our world, that they would know your grace, so that we would have peace on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. We ask for your kingdom to come so that there will be no more divisions, no more divides, but all will be under you as our Lord of all. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.